Good morning, church. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. Uh, we're coming into a, a doctrinally rich passage. John 5 is, uh, it contains a sermon that's by Jesus, it's about Jesus, exalting Jesus. There's a lot of theology in this passage. There's a lot of beautiful uh, Christology as we learn about the nature of Jesus and who he is. Um, but, but primarily, this passage that we're coming into is a, is a call from Jesus to any who would hear to behold how great the Son of God is. Um, so let's read John chapter 5, verse 24 through 30. Um, here it is. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can, do, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, uh, it doesn't show up right away in this passage, but if you read all of the, the messages, all the words of Jesus, you'll see that he quotes or references Old Testament scripture a whole lot. And one of his favorite books of the Bible seems to be Isaiah. He references Isaiah many times. And uh, if you read Isaiah chapter 55, you'll see the New Testament parallels just jump off the page. Right away, Isaiah, Isaiah 55 begins with the words, Come, everyone who thirsts. And, and that ought to ring some bells already. You know, remember when Jesus says this? We'll read about it later in, in John. Uh, but if you continue in Isaiah 55, you'll come to another passage that really points to the passage that we're, we're reading here in John 5. In Isaiah 55, verse 3, it reads like this, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I'll just read the rest of the verse because it's good. And I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now that first line, hear that your soul may live, that's sort of Jesus' version, his echo of, um, or sorry, it's more of uh, Isaiah foreshadowing what Jesus is going to echo in John 5. Uh, but let's look, let's look back so you can remember some context. Jesus, remember, um, in the first part of John 5, he healed a man on the Sabbath. And there are people, there were people that day, that thought more of the day of the week than the, the lives that were being lived on that day. So they, they give Jesus some trouble for this. It actually said in verse 16 that this was why the Jews sought to kill him. That's crazy. Because he healed on the Sabbath. That was their reason for wanting to kill him. But when Jesus answers them, he gives a defense for healing on the Sabbath, which is not very defensive. It's certainly not apologetic in the least. In answering, he gives them another reason to want to kill him. He doesn't deny working on the Sabbath at all. In fact, he says, my father is working and I am working. And it's that reference to his father that really bent people out of shape. They understood that Jesus was making himself equal with God. And so then, Jesus really preaches. He shows them that, yes, that's exactly who I am. I am God's equal. 
And two weeks ago, when we were in John 5 last, we saw there were five things that Jesus and his Father do or are that show their equality. Jesus is equal to the Father in work, in love, in power, in judgment, in honor. And Jesus, in, in saying all of these things, he's making his role and his rank very clear. And, and now for the second, the middle section of Jesus' sermon, he's moving into the part of his speech that demands a response. Now, when you encounter a man who is equal with God, the question ought to be, well, what do I do about that? And Jesus is going to answer that question, and the answer is very similar to the words of Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me here, that your soul may live. Now look at verse 24. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, of course, this is more of that language that's crystal clear, that, that where Jesus is clearly making himself equal with God. To say, if you believe in my words, you'll have everlasting life, this is no small claim. This is the kind of talk that provoked C.S. Lewis to, to consider the three options. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Because normal people, sane people, honest people, mortal people, don't say that their words have power to give life. Or, or to take away, power to raise the dead, power to grant eternal life. But that's what Jesus says. The parallel to Isaiah, of course, is another gesture towards his divinity. In Isaiah, it's God telling Israel, hear my words, hear that your soul may live. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He says, if you hear my word, you'll have everlasting life. He is claiming the same authority for himself. But not only does he say that he can give life to those who are already living, his, and those who have the power to hear, you kind of have to be alive in order to hear, his authority reaches beyond the grave. Now, two weeks ago, we, we already saw that this was one of the things that makes Jesus equal with God. It's his ability to, and his authority to raise up. Verse 21 of John 5 said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Now he's saying that he has authority to give life, not only to those who are already in possession of life, but he can give life to the dead. In verse 25, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now you may remember all the way back in December when we started this book, this study through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, um, you know, I, I pointed out that John likes to use words with double meanings. He likes layers, right? That's just the kind of writer he is. And there's a clear double meaning in this passage. When Jesus is talking about life and death, his words can be applied either physically or spiritually. Of course, Jesus does physically raise the dead in the Gospels. There's the young girl, the daughter of Jairus. He says, Talitha kumi, little girl arise. And, and as her parents give her something to eat, the, he raises the, uh, the widow's son in Nain. And he, he raises Lazarus. And also at his death, the Bible says that the graves were open and many saints rose from their tombs. So yes, Jesus physically raises the dead. And in Acts, he continues to do so by his spirit through his apostles. And, and we actually know that Jesus is at least in including this physical or total resurrection when he's talking about this, because in verse 28, he says, uh, For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That, that's not just a spiritual death. That's not just being born again. He's talking about a real physical, total thing. But we have to keep in mind that there's that other layer. There's that spiritual reality that overlaps physical resurrection. Paul says that when we are in sin, we are dead in sin. Before you place your faith in Christ, you're dead. There's a need to be born again and brought to life. So when Jesus is saying the hour is coming and now is, this moment, the moment he's speaking, he says that the, the moment is now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. He's layering He's layering his theology. The hour is coming. That's the future. It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. When the dead rise, there is coming a day when the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will meet, with the, will meet the Lord in the air. Okay, that, that's in the future. But he also says that the hour now is. That means that as his words are going forth now, that those sound waves are vibrating and coming into the ears of the spiritually dead. And their hearts are resonating with truth, and they are coming alive. Now that, that's why we preach the gospel. Because we have the words of Jesus, and we have his spirit who still inspires those same words as they go out. We preach the gospel knowing that it has the power to raise the spiritually dead and completely transfer them from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. Jesus claims this power in the hearing of his accusers, and he explains his thinking, uh, that he explains the force behind this authority. In verse 26, he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Having life in himself. That's pretty cool. Uh, both the Father and the Son, they have life in themselves. What does that mean? It means that they owe their existence to no one. Now, you do not have life in yourself, within yourself. I don't have life within myself. Uh, you and I both, we owe our lives, you know, right now to the air that we're breathing and the last several meals that we ate and the sun that keeps our planet supplied with energy. You know, I mean, we depend on photosynthesis for our lives. God does not. Um, and in another way, of course, you owe your life to your parents. And if you zoom out even past, you know, this universe, you owe your life to God, the creator of all things. You do not have life in yourself. You're borrowing life. Many of the pagan gods were believed to have parents or, or makers, and they had parents, and they had parents. And you go back further and further and further in infinite regress, and then you never get back to the beginning uh, because, you know, these other cults and religions, they didn't believe in a God who had life within himself. They figured, well, he had to have life from somewhere. Um, this is actually very similar to the Mormon teaching of the nature of God. And we say no. We say God is the beginning. He has life in himself. There's the joke about the scientists competing with God to create life. And, and, and you know, God made Adam and the scientist gets his lab ready and his soil shaped into, you know, a little humanoid form. And he's got his wires and his chemicals in place. And he, he goes to flip a switch and God says, hey, 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 no, 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 you've got to use your own dirt. Because only God can create ex nihilo, out of nothing. And only God can actually create life. All created things owe their existence to the giver of life, to God. But God himself is uncreated. He exists within himself without owing his existence 
to any other. This is true of God the Father. This is true of God the Son. And it's not listed in this passage, but it's true of God the Holy Spirit as well. You know, we don't, we don't really even have words to describe this characteristic well. Because nothing but God can be described like this. So, when you study theology, you realize there's a, there's a very selective, very narrow kind of vocabulary that you have to use because these words can really only be used to describe one thing, and that's God. And you'll notice that there's, there's a lot about God that we don't have words for at all. We're left with only uh, the only option, which is description by way of negation. In other words, to describe him by what he isn't rather than what he is. We say that God is infinite which really just means that he isn't finite. Okay, finite has limits. That's something we can understand. Infinite is something that keeps you up at night. Infinity, you know, makes you silent and feel small. Um, so we have this word infinite, which just means he's not finite. We say that God is immutable, that he doesn't change or mutate. You can kind of see that word in there. We say that he is he is incomprehensible, meaning you cannot comprehend him. His ways are past finding out. And that this self-existence of God has a theology word attached to it, and that word is aseity. And it's sort of the same as saying independence in regards to life, which is, again, a description by negation, right? He's not dependent on anyone. And remember, in this speech, Jesus is answering charges brought by his enemies. His enemies had two complaints so far. It was that Jesus treated the Sabbath poorly, or incorrectly, or illegally, and they, they complained that Jesus claimed to have equality with God. And the sermon that we're studying here is Christ's defense. But it's, it's not a defense. At least it, it's not very defensive. It's not reflexive. Jesus hears them in words or in the murmurs of their hearts. He hears that they think he's making himself equal with God, and they've got a problem with that. And instead of shying away from that, instead of saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm no one special here. He says, I have life in myself. I possess life itself. All things are held together by the word of my power. I am absolute being. The fact that Jesus has life in himself means that he is claiming to be the source. He is the author of life, the source of life. And this is a bold statement. But Jesus is claiming this, the highest office. And the way John describes it, he actually appeals to the most excellent position in a way both Jew and Greek would have understood. Remember, John is writing to both Jew and Greek. For the Jew, the author of life is God. They had a solid theology as far as, you know, God the creator. Their God is the creator of all life and, and is the only one with life in himself. Jesus makes himself equal with that God by saying that he, the Son of God, has life in himself. The Greeks, the Gentiles, they didn't have a, a good theology. They didn't have the idea of a God that had no origins. The gods of the Romans and the Greeks, you know, they were simply rebels who had overthrown a generation of gods before them, their parents and their kings. However, the Greeks at this, in this era, they loved philosophy. And then they had Plato who described the highest principle, a perfect form of which other things are derived. And Plato argued that in order to say something is more or less beautiful, we have to have a thing that is perfect beauty. For something to be more or less good, something morally perfect must exist. And that idea of a perf 
perfect form was Plato's idea of the, the only thing that could have aseity, the only thing that could be uncaused. Now, if a Greek had heard Jesus say, I have life in myself, they would have thought of their gods who do not have life in themselves. And they may have thought of their philosophy, which says that there is an ultimate thing or idea. And Jesus would cast down the one, the faulty theology, and then really fulfill the hope that their philosophy could never quite reach. Um, Jesus, he says he has life in himself. But that life was granted to him from the Father. Now, earlier in his sermon, Jesus had said that he could do nothing apart from the Father. He was totally, completely submitted to the will of his Father. And, and this is the way the Trinity works. The Father forever granting the Son authority. The Son constantly receiving. You know, Arianism, we've talked about that, okay? That's a, that's a heresy. Uh, the Arianism is the belief that Jesus is not God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. We can't entertain that thought. This chapter alone will throw that heresy to the ground. Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is God. But there's another heresy that this throws out too, and that's the ancient heresy of Sabellianism. Now, you're definitely getting your fill, your money's worth, as far as big fancy words go this week. But Sabellianism is really just the idea that it's Jesus only. Um, this heresy exists today as well. It's the belief that there is no difference between the Father and the Son. It highlights the unity between the persons, but disregards the, um, the distinction between the persons. This idea shows up even when well-meaning Christians try to explain the Trinity and do a bad job of it, because that's not really something that can be done. Um, and they'll, they'll say that the Father, or Son, or Spirit, they're all just expressions of the same entity. Just like one person can be a Father, and a Son, and a friend. If that's the way you explain the Trinity, then um, don't. That's the heresy of Sabellianism. And it fails to realize that one person cannot be their own Father. Jesus is making a distinction. He has life in himself. He is self-sustaining, self-existing, dependent on no outside source and a supplier of all the life that exists. And, at the same time, paradoxically, he has been granted this from the Father. So at the same time, he is distinct from the Father and submitted to the Father within the Godhead, and he is equal with the Father, of course it's confusing. No, of course I don't understand it completely, but yes, it's true. And there's more. Verse 27 says, and the Father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. The Son has authority to execute judgment. We talked about this in a message a few weeks ago online, and, and here in this passage, Jesus is saying it again. He has already said in verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Alright, that was verse 22. The Son of God, God the Son, is the judge. That's what he does. That's his job. This is the role of the second person of the Trinity, to execute judgment. Now, on a grand eternal scale, this is pretty incredible. The, you know, the, the book of Revelation style vision of the Son of God riding on a white horse with a drawn sword, and everything is pretty magnificent. And Jesus is going to bring the conversation to that level. He's going to make everyone... You know, he's going to make sure that everyone listening knows that he is talking about eternal destiny here. But, but sometimes when the picture is zoomed out so wide and the lesson gets so broad, it kind of loses meaning or clarity. 
Now, so let's zoom in again. Who is Jesus talking to right at this moment? He is talking to the most judgmental people you could know. And they would have worn that title with a, like a badge of honor. Alright? He's talking to the most judgmental people that existed at the time. He's talking to people who have already passed judgment on him. They've sentenced him in their hearts and their minds. They've sentenced him to death because he healed on the Sabbath. Um, and remember, this, this whole time, Jesus, he has never shied away from their accusations that he, he does heal on the Sabbath and that he is claiming equality with God. He has made it extraordinarily clear that, yes, he has made himself equal with God. But by mentioning judgment here, it seems like Jesus is going on the offensive with his accusers, addressing the most judgmental people you can imagine. Jesus says that he alone has the power and the authority to judge. He has authority to outjudge the judgiest. He has the authority to pass sentence on the self-appointed judges uh, in his day. And he says that, I can do this. I have been granted the ability to judge. You think you're judging me, but you're not. I'm judging you. And he says that he, this is because he is the Son of Man. Um, now, that's not going to make a lot, of us, a lot of sense if you don't understand this title, Son of Man. I, I like it when the title shows up because I like to talk about it, and I like the Old Testament passages that, that uh, kind of fill in the, the gaps in our understanding about this title. Um, you see, the Son of Man is not just a weird way of saying human being uh, or something. No, Son of Man was a royal title, a prophetic title, a priestly title, and, and even, it may be suggested, a divine title. And I've already talked about this when we were in John 3, when, and that was the first time in John where Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. So I'm not going to do a, a whole study on this, but I'll give you the greatest hits. Um, the two places where the title Son, Son of Man is used in the Old Testament the most is Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel is called the Son of Man, and Ezekiel was a priest who was a prophet. His ministry is defined... Uh, by the standing in the gap ministry that he had, interceding for the people, speaking on behalf of the people to God, revealing the will of God to the people, a very Christ-like mediator position. And he is called Son of Man, a prophet and a priest who mediates between God and, God and man. But in Daniel chapter 7, we read about the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven. Um, if someone is coming from heaven, that seems to indicate that this person is is divine. It says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. In that text, son of man is definitely a kingly title. Perhaps it's even a divine title. So when Jesus says that he is the son of man, this is what he's talking about. Here in John 5, he says that he has the authority to judge precisely because he is the Son of Man. So he's probably referring to this Daniel passage. He's saying that he is the one who has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And he's the one that, that God has given the right to receive praise from all peoples, nations, and languages. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, we have some information given to us that's sort of in between the lines, between verses 28 and 29. Um, 
or sorry, verse 27 and 28. Verse 28 begins with the words, do not marvel at this. So that indicates that between verse 27 and 28, there was a whole lot of marveling going on. Um, it indicates that there was a stir after Jesus made his Son of Man reference. And he sees it in their eyes and in their hearts. And, and there he, he sees that he had surprised them by what he said. And he still doesn't back down. He says essentially, you ain't seen nothing yet. He says, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This is the step further. Not only will Jesus judge a situation in front of him, and not only will he give his followers eternal life, all who hear him, but he will also judge every soul of every person who has ever lived. This is bold. And also heretical on a number of levels, according to some of his hearers. Remember, Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection at all. But Jesus says, not only is there a resurrection, but every person who will be resurrected, uh, excuse me, every person will be resurrected to give an answer for how they use their life, their borrowed life. Jesus, who is claiming equality with God, is claiming authority over the dead and over death itself. And he will call to those in the graves and be heard. Now, this, this next part needs some explaining. This uh, verse 29, which I read, it says that there are two kinds of resurrection. There's one of life and one of condemnation. And then he says that one is for those who have done good and one is for those who have done evil. And of course, if you isolate this verse and remove it from the rest of Scripture, you get a pretty formulaic religion, right? That it's a, it's a, a tale as old as time right here. It's do good things, go to heaven, do bad things, don't. Uh, when, when you place, you know, this story just on a pedestal by itself, you just get religion, you get legalism. But when you put it back into Scripture and you place it into the wider context of Scripture, you see that this verse shows up in the same book that says it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to His mercy, He saved us. These are not contrasting theologies. Um, these aren't enemies. The, the, the idea is this. Those who do good do so because they have been made good. Those who do evil do so because they remain evil. And Jesus himself makes this very clear in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 16, and in the following verses, he says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits you will know them. The fruit bears witness of the root. It's the heart, the source, that must be converted. But the deeds give evidence of the heart's condition. This has always been uh, part of Jesus' message. Uh, and the reason for showing there to be a division between doers of good and doers of evil is not to say, well, you need, a, you need a better list, you need more commandments, you need more law, which was the religious solution. The reason to say that, hey, there's two, two roads here, there's two choices here, there's two resurrections, and I'm telling you this because I want you to check your heart. Find out what kind of things are coming out of your heart so that you can see that your heart is in need of conversion. The whole... Uh, of the Old and New Testaments show that the there's a need for humanity, and that need is that the old heart needs to be removed, and the new heart 
there, there's a need for a new heart to replace it. Take out the heart of stone, receive a heart of flesh. And when you hear and receive the words of Jesus, this is how he gives you life, by completely replacing your old heart with his new heart. He talks about those who have done good. And we say, well, it's not by works, right? It's not by works. But then Jesus, later on in this same passage, will say, um, or it's actually, I think it's in, it might be in chapter 6. I don't remember. No, it's in chapter 5. He says that um, the works are to believe in him who sent me. That's your work. The work of the believer is faith. It is to believe. And faith, it is that, it's the, the work of faith that you will be judged by. Did you believe? Do you believe? Then um, we're going to wrap this up here with the last verses. Jesus closes this second section of the sermon, verses 24 through 30. Uh, it's sort of a section in itself, and it, it's, it's about authority and how great and good the Son of God is. And Jesus has said in verse 19 that he can do nothing of himself. All authority was given to him from his Father. And now in verse 30, he's going to do the same thing. He says in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The idea that Jesus only does what the Father says, that's a repeated theme. The truth that Jesus is the judge is also a repeated truth. It's not the first time we've read this. But there's a detail in this verse that is new. Jesus says that his judgment is righteous because he does not seek his own, and because he seeks the will of the Father. This passage shows us the beauty of Jesus in contrast with the corrupt world that he is addressing. Our world today is very corrupt. That's not a new thing. There's nothing new under the sun. But if our sin and our corruption and our, and our selfishness and self-seeking, if all of that is old, then Christ's righteousness is older. And in John 5, Jesus heals a man, and then he's criticized and condemned for it. The people call evil good and good evil, and to address these people, Jesus says, look how great the Son of God is. Look how vast his authority. Look at how mighty he is. Look, he has power to give and also to judge the living and the dead. He has power over sin. He has power over death. And he offers eternal life. Jesus stands against the world and says, if you hear my words, you'll have everlasting life, and I raise the dead. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. As the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself. If this falls short of equality with God, I don't know what equality means. This message that Jesus brings, it exalts the Son of God. It exalts Jesus. And then Jesus says, resurrection is coming. The good will rise and the evil will rise and all will be judged. But the point of the sermon Jesus brings, it's not only that people who are raised, um, you know, will, will be judged. It, it's not, the point of a sermon is not about the lives they lead at all. The point of this message is very clearly that God is great. The, the point that he's driving home is, is about the greatness and the glory and the authority and the supremacy of Christ himself above all things. And, you know, for, for some, the part that seems to have the most personally applicable stuff, the things that we want to know more about, is this bit about resurrection, right? And it's good to consider, which resurrection will you participate in? The resurrection of the righteous or the resurrection of the unrighteous? The thing that determines that is what you do with the subject of Jesus' speech, his sermon. The central figure in this sermon is Jesus himself. 
And it is what you do with him that determines the nature of your resurrection. So Jesus would echo Isaiah and expound on the truths of Isaiah and say to each one, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that as your word has gone out uh, in this video, and that as your word goes out this Sunday as we meet in person, that it will have its full effect and not return to you void. We have seen a glimpse. We've seen that you are great. and We believe that you are greatly to be praised. God, we, we delight in the mercy that you show. We even delight, as the psalm, psalm say, says we are ought to, we, we delight in your judgments and in your law. We, we pray, God, um, that we would have uh, more awareness, more light, more revelation of how great the Son of God is so that we can be more frequently drawn into a deeper worship of Him. Thank you for this passage. We thank you for your church. We ask your blessing and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.